Welcome to Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we invite people working in a variety of different fields related to aging and hear their stories. Tune in. Either you're considering a career in aging, or want to learn more about aging fields, or simply want to listen to a stimulating conversation, you will find something you like. Find Voices of Aging on the iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guests are Dr. Colleen Peterson and Dr. Robin Berkland. Dr. Peterson is a postdoctoral research associate focusing on aging, dementia care, and roadway safety at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Berkland is a study counselor at the University of Minnesota and provides counseling and support to families with loved ones experiencing dementia involved in research studies. Hi, Dr. Peterson and Dr. Berkland. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thanks. I would love it if we could start just by having both of you introduce yourself to our audience um, and tell us about what you do, what you work on as it pertains to aging and transportation. Sure. I'll go first. I am Colleen Peterson, and I earned my PhD in epidemiology last summer in 2020. And my Aging-related issues and transportation have really been there since the get-go. I'm interested in roadway safety over the life course. My dissertation focused on the types of speeding decisions people make over time as they age and how those change and why. Right now, I'm a co-PI on Car Free Me, which is a coaching program that Robin works on, too, that works with families who are caring for persons with memory loss and helping to transition them safely and uh, with dignity to driving retirement. Yes. And I'm Robin Berklin. I have a PhD in clinical psychology. I work with the, the Families and Long-Term Care Projects team, and we do a lot of, of research and education and community outreach for caregivers um, who are uh, caregiving for someone with memory loss. So a lot of our research studies are intervention studies and as Colleen had said, I, I do the interventions um, for the Car for Me study and for some other studies as well for caregivers and, and their loved ones. Wonderful. Thank you both. Um, I'm wondering what inspired each of you to enter your respective fields. Sure. I guess I'll go first again, Colleen, here. Um, so I've been, in, like I said, I was interested in roadway safety. I actually started more on just general population uh, given that epidemiology, that's kind of what we do. I was looking at speeding and and noticed some trends in age-related trends. It seems like people tend to not speed so much as they age. And so that was kind of my emphasis in my dissertation research. But at the same time, I was working with uh, Dr. Gogler and Robin at the Families and Long-Term Care uh, Study Team on dementia and dementia care and noticed a lot of people... Um, um, at our annual Caring for Persons with Memory Loss conference asked specifically about driving safety issues and what they could do to help themselves and their loved ones stay safe on the road. 
And so that's where, you know, we kind of are now and merging those two things with dementia care and roadway safety. Yes, um, I agree. I mean, I think for this study in particular, it came from talking with community members and talking with uh, memory care providers and just hearing how difficult this transition can be for people and how there really isn't much support out there. And so, you know, it's just it just seemed like there is a huge need in, in the community for it. So, um, you know, we, we actually came upon this study um, through uh, colleagues in Australia, and they've done the car free me intervention out there as well. And so we were just kind of refining it for the US audience. And it, you know, I think it, this is specific to individuals with dementia, but I think, you know, for a lot of different um, situations, driving retirement support would be very helpful. So maybe we'll expand it past dementia next. Absolutely. And Colleen, you kind of touched on this a little bit. I'm curious if there are any characteristic changes that occur in transportation behaviors for the aging population. And are there differences between older adults in general and people experiencing dementia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I should say right at the start that getting older doesn't mean you become an unsafe driver automatically. It changes, you know, it's person dependent. But overall, there are trends with just everyone's physical body and how how it changes as we age. And so older adults tend to have more trouble with vision and range of motion and might have more physical difficulties like doing a neck turn to be able to see and look for oncoming traffic and that sort of thing. And in terms of persons with dementia, I think I, I could answer that, but I think Robin has better insight on that given her in-person experience with it. Right. Yeah. So the aging population, like you said, there's vision difficulties, there's you know physical difficulties, but with dementia, there are those difficulties as well as you age, but there's also more difficulties with more your cognitive skills. So decision-making, and you need to be able to make a decision quickly when you're driving you need to be able to pay close attention to what you're doing and sustain that attention to be able to see that there's something that you need to make a decision about. And those are things that are impacted by dementia. So there's difficulty with decision-making, difficulty with sustained attention. There's what you would kind of expect with dementia, or at least with Alzheimer's dementia that affects memory, difficulty with remembering what different road signs means, how to get from point A to point B. So there's, there's things like that. There's difficulty especially again with Alzheimer's dementia, seeing yourself in space and knowing where you are. So if you're driving your car, you may think that you're right in the center of your lane, but in actuality, you're you're way too close and you're brushing somebody, uh, either another car or the tree or the mailbox. So there are things that really impact kind of just safe driving. And one of the difficulties with dementia is it impacts your ability to recognize that you're having these problems or to kind of have that feeling like I'm doing something wrong or something's happening here that I don't have control over. And so, you know, it's hard for people to recognize that I am driving poorly or something is amiss here. Right. And I was going to add back to the general, comparing that to the general population of a lot of older adults uh, choose to self-restrict they're driving and decide to drive. And that means like choose not to drive at night or avoid driving in heavy rain or only drive on paths that they know or avoid the highways. Um, so that's general insight that persons who don't have dementia have, which wisely that can be lacking with someone who's suffering from dementia. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's kind of a common experience a lot of people have with a family member, perhaps a grandparent or a parent who may have been diagnosed with dementia and then sort of struggling to come to an agreement about what is safe and what kind of driving behaviors make sense because the person with dementia might not understand that anything is wrong, um, as you were saying, Robin. So yeah, I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to. Oh, I was just going to say, and also the importance of having needing to have those conversations over and over again if the person doesn't remember the issues or the previous decisions that have been made. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And kind of going off of that, you know, I, I you hear a lot of people just sort of generally talking about, you know, teen drivers are more dangerous or older drivers are more dangerous. Are Is there data out there that suggests that a specific age group of drivers is associated with the most accidents or unsafe driving? Uh, yeah, there's definitely data on there. Thank goodness. So actually, it's um, younger men who are most involved in fatal uh, crashes. They have the highest risk. In fact, uh, men have more elevated risk for roadway fatalities until like uh, the mid 70s. That's about when the uh, gender gap disappears, interestingly enough. But in terms of older adults, although they're less likely to be involved in a crash on their own, it's more likely that they will end up suffering a fatality or other significant injury when they are in a crash. So that's important to realize. Like the numbers are, they sort of uh, work out that it's risky for everyone, obviously, to be involved in a crash. And you can edit out that fumbling there. <laughs> oh, no worries. Um, <laughs> definitely. And I'd love to hear more about, you know, what are the specific concerns that are coming up for people living with dementia and their companions? What are concerns that people have? In regard to driving, it's interesting because for the care partner um, or family member, they're going to have to take on a lot more responsibility. They're going to be doing all the driving or coordinating the driving or, you know, possibly depending on how far uh, progress with dementia, they may be the ones like having to make all the calls to Uber or or whatever it is. So they're going to be taking on a lot. So that can be very difficult for a caregiver. Another thing that they have to kind of take into consideration or we need to take into consideration um, when we are working with these older adults is that a lot of this is part of their identity. And if we're talking about spouses, if the husband's the one who is needing to give up driving, the wife may not be someone who has been the primary driver and it may be a very difficult transition that she's not very comfortable with or vice versa. And so it's it really is, you know, for the caregiver, there's a lot more to it than just, okay, he or she is unsafe and needs to stop driving. There are pieces of it that they're going to have to take on that makes it more of a burden for them. Uh, for the, you know, beyond that, you know, you do have these safety risks and it's very trying for the care partner because they're worried. I mean, they're extremely worried when somebody leaves, are they going to, are they going to get into an accident? Are they going to hurt someone else? And there's a lot of, of stress with that, that they hold on to. So that's not fun for them either. And, you know, the driver themselves may or may not, and oftentimes are not aware of how they're driving as we talked about. So it's not as stressful for them. And sometimes even with dementia, they may do some things where they don't drive as much at night or so, you know, they might, and that can be, they can kind of chalk that up to general aging and vision and and not feel that that's a, you know, like something further than that. But you know, it is, it's a very difficult navigation for spouses and, and for um, obviously for the adult children as well, because you don't want to worry about your, your parent going out and, and getting into trouble. And if you're long distance, 
you can't even really help out with any of that driving. And did you mention, Robin, too, the, the concern about having a license taken away and like what that means for right. their personhood and, and independence also is a big issue because a person, you know, especially in a car centric Western nation like the U.S. or people living out in rural areas, driving is how one gets around to doing everything. Uh, thankfully, I get silver lining with the pandemic. A lot of people, even older adults, have been getting on you know, Zoom and engaging in their communities remotely anyway. But still, there's a lot of community engagement and activities that just require your car. Exactly. Yeah, definitely the identity piece. I, I did not mention that for the person who's driving and if they have to, to give up their license. I mean, it's it often can lead to some more significant emotional distress and feeling like you're less than. It makes sense that driving would be the primary concern for a lot of people when considering changes in transportation behaviors. Do those concerns also translate over to other forms of transportation, like airline travel, things like that? It's interesting you you talk about airline travel because Colleen and I are are both, Colleen is very actively involved um, in a dementia-friendly work group that is trying to, to get all the airports in the United States and well everywhere to be dementia-friendly because it is such a difficult experience for people to try to navigate it's difficult for all of us. But you know, if you have someone who's struggling, we just don't have policies in place. And we've started to, and that's what the work group has started to do to have these policies in place. So TSA won't separate someone in a security line who someone from their care partner, because that can be very, very overwhelming. It's just, there's a lot to airline travel from the moment you get to the airport, get on the plane and get off and get out that we don't do a really good job of making it easy for people. Yeah. In addition to caregivers being separated from a person with dementia, there's also the typical environment of an airport that's very crowded, very noisy. There's a lot of brightness that really doesn't help older adults who are having more vision trouble, like be able to see, you know, where does the carpet end versus where does the wall end? And then typical navigation issues as well, even even for um, fully uh, cognitively intact persons traveling and navigating around an airport can be difficult. And it's even more so uh, for a person um, suffering from dementia. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful information to know. For those of us that don't have to consider that, you you sort of come to realize how difficult that must really be. Yeah. And also, um, we didn't mention public transit as well. Just in Car Free Me, the program that research program that we've been talking about, um, we do mention public transportation and Uber and Lyft and other things like that. But a lot of the population isn't comfortable with it because they haven't used it. Or they're also, like we talked about earlier, the rural populations where that option just isn't available. Though there are often like community driving programs and um, what is around here, it's called Metrolink that people can sign up to be involved in. But a lot of times that just the knowledge isn't there that it exists in the first place. Yeah. And I guess I'm not exactly certain how widespread this really is, but it seems like many states require additional training for older drivers in order to continue driving and keep their license. Based on data that exists, is this a fair and effective way to identify risky drivers? Yeah, I haven't actually heard of requiring additional training for older drivers, but I have heard of uh, required testing being like a new thing. Like after the age 60, you have to, on a regular basis, get what basically amounts to in a lot of DMVs, get visual testing uh, worked out, those little blinky lights 
and stuff. But you might be also thinking of training that is offered by like AAA and other insurance companies where if they if you do that training for older adults, you'll get a reduced rate on insurance rates. And that's that seems all voluntarily done. But uh, Robin can speak to more of the, the legal issues around driving and reporting that some states have. It varies widely, which is a problem and a, and a blessing such that we can learn from the differences. Right. Yeah. I mean, every state basically has their own rules about this and laws. Uh, some will require you to come in more often, like every two years or every five years or every eight years. It just kind of depends. And it's starting at a certain age. And really, it's just, you know, to do that visual test, although some do more in-depth testing. It's very, it varies from state to state. And so I think for many, um, if you're going to do a, a kind of additional, tra- I don't know that the additional training would help to identify a risky driver. And I'm not a visual, obviously, because you need to be able to see. So the vision test would help identify a risky driver. And I think just coming into contact a lot with your DMV, I think that actually would be pretty helpful. I'm sure it's not something that drivers with dementia who aren't ready to retire yet would, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that brings a lot of anxiety to go in for those tests um, or to have to go in at all. But yet, I, I think it would probably help to to kind of bring it to everyone's to the front of everyone's mind that this is, you know, like this is something that we may need to have a conversation about at some point that this isn't, you know, like that people are checking and making sure we're okay. But yeah, you know, most states don't take away your license if you have a diagnosis of dementia. Most don't even ask you to report that you have a diagnosis of dementia. Some states that do, it, it's not even you as an individual would report it. It's your doctor that they require to report it. And it doesn't, that doesn't mean they're going to take away your license. And, and that's okay. As, as Colleen mentioned earlier, you know, just because you have a diagnosis of dementia doesn't mean automatically they should pull your license. You're still capable of driving just because you're a certain age doesn't mean they should pull your license. You're still capable of driving. It varies from person to person with dementia though. The odds are extremely high that you will need to give up your license. If not hundred percent, you know, at some point during the progression of dementia, that there'd be enough impact on you to be able to drive safely that you would have to give up your license, but you don't have to do that right away. Yeah. That's a perfect segue into my next question how is it that we should determine when to take driving privileges away from an older adult? Um, Perhaps it's the perspective of family members who are monitoring an older adult in their life. I'm sure many of us have experienced this, myself included, because obviously if if your loved one is reaching the point where they're getting into multiple fender benders, things like that, that would make sense to kind of take privileges at that point. But are there earlier signs that people should be looking out for helpful indicators? There definitely are. And there are checklists. Um, the Hartford has one, AAA has one. And there are definitely like checklists that you can look at and see, okay, is this is this happening? And and things like are there are there multiple fender benders? Are people honking? Um, if if you find that other people are honking, that might be a sign that, you know, you're not driving so well. Um, are they getting lost going to some place that they have gone to a whole bunch? Exactly. Exactly. So there, I mean, there's definitely checklists you can find with red flags. And I think, you know, just, just kind of driving with someone you will see, as you mentioned, you know, like, you'll know, like, okay, this is getting scary, you know, right away issues or, you know, being in turn lane and turning the wrong way. Those kind of issues are, are things that are often seen with someone with dementia as well. So 
I mean, in driving with someone, you would you would see that and pick that up. But I don't feel that it's really like the family's job to take away the license. It's the family's responsibility to to look for safe driving and unsafe driving and say, okay, I'm concerned. But I wouldn't put that on the family then to have to be the ones to move, you know, forward in taking away the license. My, I mean, I would say talk to their healthcare provider. That would be the the first line, or or get um, a on the road assessment, driving assessment, where like you the you essentially are driving in your neighborhood. You're driving someone else's car because they need to have like the the brakes and stuff. So it's a little bit different. But the familiarity of driving in your neighborhood and on the roads that you're used to is fantastic. So they'll come out and you you drive around and and I think essentially um, they're looking to see how you know what you're doing logistically when you're driving, but also like can you get from point A to point B and point B to point C? So you got to get from like the grocery store to the post office to the bank. And these are all places that you have told them that you go. So they're really trying to make this like your world and not like taking you to some crazy area or onto a close course that you're not familiar with. Um, and then they see like how how you respond driving and what your reaction time is and your decision making is like. And so that gives them a really good idea of how well you're driving if you can continue to drive. They won't, they also will not be the ones to say, we're taking your license, but they will give a recommendation to your doctor. And then your doctor can take that information and, and go from there, you know, report it to the state if need be. And if that's, you know, like if those aren't working and you still are really concerned or you can't, because your driver assessment tests are, are out of pocket and they're pretty expensive. They're like $250, $300 in that range, I think. You know, if you can't do that, then you could, as a family member, make an anonymous report to the state, to the DMV, and then they would um, have them do an evaluation. So there is that. But I hate to put that on the family to be the ones, because there's a lot of people who are experts and know what they're doing that can be the ones to move forward with that. Yeah. And and also we found in our research that having that third party person being the one to talk about this and raise it help frame it as an, a safety issue really helps reduce the strain on all parties involved and helps the driver with memory loss be a little more accepting of the issue at hand because there could be a lot of history and relationship issues between you know the family caregiver and the person with the memory loss that strains that decision being made. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I I know from my own experience, having the conversation with a family member without that third party involved, it's really challenging because there tends to be um, a lot of difficulty getting that message across without there being sort of the need to place blame and, and things like that. That being said, let's say you have multiple parties involved in this conversation, but you're still attempting to support your family member, loved one or transition towards not driving anymore. What kinds of suggestions or guidelines are there for having those kinds of conversations? Yeah, Quite early um, and often, but uh, yeah, go ahead, Robin. You're the, no, the study no, coach here. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's, that's perfect. Early and often. Um, you know, the more, the more time you can have with the conversation, um, not saying have a long conversation, but the more time that you can kind of give to this process, because it's not a one-time conversation usually. Um, usually you're going to have this conversation multiple times. And maybe that first few times you're met with resistance, first thing is don't press on with it because you're not going to get anywhere. So just kind of, okay, we're not going to talk about this anymore. We'll, we'll come up with this conversation again at a different time, um, but not to press forward. But, um, you know, the 
the important thing is really to try to collaborate with the driver. I mean, this is like an adult who has been driving their whole life, who is, you know, like a very, you know, like functional person and we need to treat them like, like we don't want to put them in a position where we're telling them, no, you can't do this anymore because how does that feel? I mean, that's not, that's not the the right way to, to go about it. So if you can have early conversations that include, you know, it's part, they're part of the decision-making process. How do I want to prepare and plan for this? When, like, when would you like me to talk about this with you, mom? When would you, when would you like us to, to kind of give you some feedback about how you're driving? If, if we start to notice that you're not driving so well, do you want to hear, do you want us to come to you about that? Do you want us, is there somebody else you want to hear this from? Because maybe like that third party, maybe that's her sister or her doctor and it's not from the kids or it's not from the spouse because, you know, that, that puts it a, a dynamic that doesn't work as well. So trying to figure out who the right person to talk to, talk to her about it is, or as I said, like, I really can't stress enough, like just knowing that you're going to have multiple conversations that you're, you want to do this as a collaboration and, and have their opinion in it. And by doing that early, you can have more of their opinion in it because by doing it later, you may like in a crisis situation, you're not going to be able to have that time. If you're doing it later and they're so far progressed that they aren't able to really contribute to the conversation, then you've missed the opportunity to have their, you know, like their say and what they want to do. Um, mm-hmm. So those are some of the the things, but really, truly um, think baby steps um, and, and how to incrementally slow things down with their driving, because that might be more acceptable. And I think it's something that people are more naturally okay to do. Like, it may be like, let's not drive on the highway. Let's, let's take the back roads now, or let's uh, not drive during rush hour, just kind of some of those things. And that is something that when you go to those driving assessments, their first line is to do things like that, to, to try to make it so that you're not, you're not giving up driving right away, that you're doing some things that can really help, like not driving in bad weather and, you know, like, like driving in in the light hours. And, And so there, there's things that they can do like that, but that's also like something, you know, to, to do and also offer support and not just support as, as in like, I, I feel like I feel for you. I know like this is a big part of your identity and part of your life. And, but also the support and like, okay, I know that you need to, you really like to go to the library every Wednesday to meet for book club. Let's, I can take you there. I like it. Try to really problem solve how, how you guys can, can be helpful and, and get them to where they need to go because it's really important for their mental health and well-being that they be able to continue to do the things that they love to do and not be like, okay, now I don't have a car and now I can't do anything. Now I can't drive. I'm stuck at home. So if you come in and say, you know, talk about driving retirement, have those like solutions. Hey, and I'm, I'm, and we can spend time together. I'm so happy that we'll be able to do that. So kind of sell it as a positive and be there for them. And sell it as a safety issue for themselves and, yes. and others, for sure. And I think that's where the emphasis on the baby steps and making small changes really comes in handy because you don't want to be making these decisions or making dramatic changes after a crisis moment. Very true. And and safety, that is something that we have heard that helps. It helps people to understand, okay, this is a safety issue. This isn't somebody just trying to take away my independence. It's nobody wants to, to harm anyone when they're driving. So um, that's a, a nice way to kind of enter the conversation, you know, just to, to have it be a focus on safety. Yeah, those are wonderful tips, um, wonderful pieces of advice. I think that's incredibly helpful to hear. 
And that wraps up all the questions that I have for you both. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Peterson and Dr. Berkland. Um, This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. We are a collaborative networking group for students studying aging across the university. Stay tuned for the next episodes of Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts.